The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. We'd like to continue our consideration of the kingdom of heaven this morning, and I'd ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15 to introduce those thoughts. We spoke last week about the misunderstanding of, unfortunately, many in Christianity that are looking for a secret rapture, that are looking for Jesus to set up a 1,000-year reign on the physical earth. And kind of in conjunction with that mindset, most people who hold to that belief put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the physical nation of Israel and a, these references in Scripture where it says, and all Israel shall be saved, they take those to mean the literal lineage of Abraham, the, the natural Jews, the circumcision of the flesh, if you will, that one of the significant benchmarks of the last days will be a 100% total returning uh, of natural Israel to believe in Jesus, okay? Now, as a parentheses side note to where we want to go to today, personally, there are too many references describing a revival and a restoration of Israel. I think the majority of them are pointing toward the church. The majority of them are pointing toward the church, but Jerusalem will, will be a very central physical location, and people who currently claim to be the lineage of the Jews will be a very important component of things that will occur in the last days, at least in my opinion. However, you cannot look at every single verse, primarily in the Old Testament, that's referencing Israel being saved and Israel coming to a knowledge of the truth and those kind of things, those are not all referring to the natural nation of Israel, okay? Now, why is that the case? Because the natural nation of Israel in the Old Testament is primarily giving us a picture and pointing us towards the New Testament kingdom the New Testament kingdom of heaven that is fulfilled in the church, okay? So when you read so many of these prophecies and uh, depictions of the Old Testament nation of Israel and Judah and Zion and all of this, most of the time, arguably most of the time, the primary fulfillment is in the church. Now, first of all, I want to say when we read Scripture, and this applies for Old and New Testament all throughout the canon of Scripture, you first of all, when you're examining the context, you need to look at the immediate application to the original audience, okay? What is the immediate application to the original audience? But then you need to look beyond that to see what are now the implications to the church today, right? Because there's nothing in the Word of God that is irrelevant to us in the kingdom of heaven and in the church today. So there is an immediate application, many times, to the natural, physical nation of Israel with things that they were doing in their life 
But then there are broad spiritual lessons that it's pointing to in the church, okay? But it's very important for us to make the distinction between natural Israel and the lineage of the Jews and the physical descendants of Abraham and then what we see here in Galatians chapter 6 that is introduced as the Israel of God, okay? The spiritual Jews that we're going to see that have received a circumcision of the heart. Not a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart and those that have received the new covenant in being born again by the Spirit of God, okay? So in Galatians chapter 6, <clears throat> beginning in verse 15, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy upon the Israel of God. Okay? The Israel of God. Now, who are the people that are identified here as the Israel of God? As many as walk according to this rule. What rule? Verse 15. That have been made a new creature. And that's the language we have in first, uh, actually 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. That when we are born again, it uses language there to describe us as being a new creature. Creation is one of the depictions of the new birth. So a new creature speaks of regeneration. It speaks of the new birth. And those that walk according to this rule, the rule that you have been made a new creature. In Jesus Christ, your heart has been circumcised with the Spirit of God. <clears throat> and those that walk according to that, peace be on them and mercy upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. And here we can see some language that clearly distinguishes between the natural Jews and then the spiritual Jews of the Israel of God. So in Romans chapter 9, Paul is saying, I wish in verse 3 that myself, if I had the choice, was, would deprive myself of spiritual blessings in the kingdom. I wish I was a curse from Christ, not that I'm choosing to go to hell, because that's not your choice, either positive or negative. But he's saying, I would give up some kingdom blessings. I would give up some of the the blessings that I have in the comfort of the gospel, if more of my natural kinsmen in the flesh, the natural Jews, if more of them could come to a knowledge of the truth, I'd be willing to give up some kingdom blessings that I enjoy right now. Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Skip to verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Okay? They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they called children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which not are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted for the seed. Okay? So, Abraham received a promise from God that in his seed, all the families and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, for that to occur in a physical sense, he had to have a child, and God miraculously blessed them to have Isaac, and he resurrected Sarah's womb and resurrected Abraham's loins for them to be able to have the, a child. But Isaac was not the seed 
that in all the families of the earth will be blessed. You look at the genealogy of Abraham all the way down to the true seed, which is Jesus Christ. When it says language there, let's go ahead and <clears throat> turn over there in uh, Genesis chapter 12 as we have just a little bit of an overview and examination of the uh, natural nation of Israel in the, in the Old Testament. This promise, this original promise to Abraham was not primarily fulfilled in Isaac. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is described in Matthew chapter 1 as being the son of Abraham, because he said, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, was in the seed of Isaac, has all nations of the earth been blessed? Well, no, right? He also says that your seed is going to be as vast and innumerable and unable to identify and count as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heaven. Now, the Jews were very particular about their genealogies, and there came a time where those were destroyed. But if there was, if there was a genealogy all the way from Adam to the end of the world, you could put, if there was appropriate records that were kept, you could put a distinct number on the lineage of how many children came from Abraham and Isaac, right? That, there's a distinct number that if you had all the appropriate paperwork that you could identify. But who is this seed that it's talking about? That your seed is going to be as broad and innumerable as the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea. It's talking about the elect, it's talking about the elect, right? It's talking about Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ, Jesus' seed is going to be as vast and innumerable as all of the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. So, <clears throat> as we look at the Old Testament nation of Israel, now these are literal people who had actual events in their life. It's not a story. It's not an allegory uh, that G God just gave us a, a story to, to teach general principles. These are physical events that occurred that have been historically documented. But at the same time, God gives us, through these literal historical events, he gives us this beautiful picture he suffered in his providence for things to occur in such a way to give us this beautiful picture of the overall story of redemption, of the, the story of discipleship and pressing into the promised land. And we can see so many um, beautiful lessons of the kingdom of heaven and the church kingdom when we examine the picture that's given us in the Old Testament, right? The very first of them being... Why did God see fit to bestow special covenant blessings upon Abraham, right? Why, why did he pick Abraham? Well, we find out that Abraham, uh, there was a time where he was just like everybody else in Ur of the Chaldees. He was worshiping false gods in Ur of the Chaldees. He wasn't a good, godly, pious man, and he was high and above everybody else there. He wasn't special. <laughs> he wasn't, there wasn't anything special about Abraham. What was special about him? God chose him, right? God chose him by his own sovereign will, and he was the, 
the person that he chose to bless in a special way above, and, and his lineage to bless in a special way, above all of the people on the face of the earth, God sovereignly chose him to bless. He gives them this, this initial blessing in Genesis chapter 12, and, and let's go to Genesis chapter 22, though, uh, to get some language uh, describing Abraham's seed, okay? He, he, he said that in your seed, all of the nations and all the family of the earth are going to be blessed, and God's elect uh, family is out of what? It's out of every nation, and kindred, kindred literally means family, so when you see kindred right there, out of every nation, family, people in tongue, and it was in the seed of Abraham that his seed, out of every nation, kindred, people in tongue, would be blessed out of all the face of the earth, okay? But another thing that's very important about the Old Testament nation of Israel is that he promised them a land. He promised them a land with boundaries and with borders, <clears throat> I'm going to go back to Genesis 13 very quickly. Verse 14. Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, and all the land which thou seest will I give to thee and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that... If a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise and walk through the land in the length of it, in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. And then Abraham moved his tent and he went to Mamre. And then the language in verse uh, chapter 22 that I think is important is he says in verse 18 of Genesis 22, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He says in chapter 12, all the families will be blessed but in chapter 22, all of the nations would be blessed. And that just simply does not apply with all of the, the natural seed of the, of the Jews, right? Uh, the, all nations of the earth were not blessed by the Jews. <laughs> they just simply weren't. And they're certainly not as enumerable. The word man can't count them. If you had appropriate genealogies, they could. But this is speaking, the seed of Abraham, of the promised seed, is speaking of Christ and then this broad seed that is innumerable is all of the elect family of God. So he's, he is using a physical action of a physical man having a physical child and in him will be blessed. He's using that to teach the broader spiritual lesson of Christ and the elect in the church. Okay? Now we fast forward in the history of, of Israel and what do they do? They go into bondage. So you have a chosen people that go into bondage in Egypt, Adam fell into sin, right? We're in bondage to sin. And what was the liberation from the bondage of sin? What was the means by which they were liberated and, and set free from the bondage of Egypt? It was by the blood of the lamb being applied to the, their individual doorpost, right? So what's that depicting? It's depicting uh, salvation by the blood of the Lamb, but also particularly uh, regeneration where the blood of the Lamb, we've been saved, all of God's children from the beginning of the world to the end of the world were legally justified on the cross before God by the blood of the Lamb, okay? But then 
in regeneration, the blood of the lamb is applied to your individual doorpost of your heart, if you'll let me use that language, okay? So every single child of God was in bondage to sin. Now they've been liberated and redeemed from the bondage of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. And then what do they do? They begin their journey to the promised land, right? To the promised land. Now, uh, there's a lot of obstacles and challenges that they have in, in making their way to the promised land. Sometimes we sing songs that speak of Jordan as being the river that we pass over uh, by way of death. Well, actually, the appropriate picture there is that Jordan is a picture of baptism, okay? Think about the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about pressing into the kingdom of heaven, pressing into the promised land. Now, there is a specific area where there are boundaries of the kingdom of heaven, but they wandered around in the wilderness, right? And a whole generation outside of everyone 28, 20, 20 and up, all except for two people, Caleb and Joshua, all of them died in the wilderness and did not press into the promised land. Why? Because of disobedience, right? Because of unbelief, because they didn't believe God. So every child of God has been redeemed from the bondage of sin. The blood of the lamb has been applied to their heart and they have come out, came out of bondage as rich people. It's just amazing to me, by the way. You read about all of the uh, requirements of the tabernacle, the silver and the gold and the purple court curtains and all that stuff. Where do you think they got all... Where do you think those people that just got out of bondage and captivity, where do you think they got all that gold and silver from? The Egyptians were so sick of them people because of their frogs and the lice and their, their children dying and the darkness and the blood and all that other stuff. They said, we're so sick of you got to take everything I have. <coughs> Here is my best silver, my best gold, my best purple curtains. And, and they came out of Egypt rich. <laughs> and isn't that a beautiful picture of God didn't just give us life, right? He didn't just give us life in the new birth. We came from death and now we have all the riches of Christ, right? But then they get there in the wilderness and they're commanded to go into the promised land. But unfortunately, only two of those 12 spies gave a good report. The other 10 gave an evil report. And, and a whole generation died in the wilderness, not pressing into the promised land. That was their rightful inheritance. Now, I want you to understand, this is giving us a picture of all the elect family of God, right? People that have been chosen, people that have been redeemed from bondage, that the blood of the lamb has been applied to their heart. And now what's the commandment from God? It's to press into the promised land. Oh, because I have given you a land that is so blessed that you can't even contain all the blessings of this promised land. I love the language here in, uh, in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. That he says you're going to go into a land. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in verse 10, I'm going to bring you into the land to give you great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, wells digged that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive plants that you didn't plant. And then he goes on to say, by the way, God's people 
you know, there's no new thing under the sun, okay? And God's people always follow the exact same pattern. At you, you take a slice of of any time period of God's people, and you're going to essentially find the exact same cycle everywhere. And what did he warn them against the very first time when he said, I'm going to give you a land that you didn't earn, that there's going to be blessings that you can't even handle. And when you have eaten and got full, he says, beware, beware, lest you get lazy. What do God's people always do? We disobey and we get lazy. Okay? But isn't it a beautiful picture to think that you've been liberated from bondage, you've come out with great riches, and then God has been so good and kind to give us this promised land of Canaan, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is the church, by the way. Like we came into here, I mean, just this morning, think about this. Just me today. The reason that I was able to come up to this building at 11 Staten Road and partake of the, the blessings of this particular church, by, why am I able to partake of the, the kingdom blessings in this setting here today? It's because somebody else built this building. It's because of the faithfulness of people here in this particular location since 1887, right? I'm partaking of blessings in the kingdom of heaven today that were built and earned by other people, which, by the way, that tells us how important it is to be a steward of what we've been given, okay? Because we are partaking of blessings in the kingdom today that we didn't earn. <laughs> we didn't earn. We are drinking from wells we didn't dig. We are partaking of 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 grapes from, from the vineyards that we didn't plant. And what's our tendency? Just like the Old Testament nation of Israel, to take it for granted, right? But this is such a beautiful depiction of the church. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he gives you a beautiful, and think about this language, okay, in regards to the church and the kingdom of heaven. Deuteronomy chapter 8. <clears throat> In verse 7, which, by the way, he begins this chapter up by saying, Obey my commandments. <laughs> Obey my commandments. And you are going to eat the good. You know, it says in Isaiah chapter 1, if you be willing and obedient, oh, you're going to eat the good of the land. What's the other side of that coin? If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. And you know what? That has pretty much been the promise of God's people from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. If you be willing and obedient, you're going to eat the good of the land. I'll tell you, you're going to be blessed beyond, with spiritual blessings beyond what you can imagine. But if you refuse and rebel, God is not mocked. You will be devoured by the sword. Okay? But look at this beautiful depiction of if you're obedient. This is the land that God has graciously given you, primarily in the church. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, verse 7, a land of brooks and water and fountain and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou diggest brass. And then he goes on to warn them again, beware lest you take all those blessings and you forget the Lord. You forget your dependency on the Lord and then we all know what God's people did. 
They did forget. They did forget the Lord. They enjoyed the prosperity. So we have this beautiful picture, depiction of the promised land. And I mean, there's a sense in which uh, heaven is the promised land, but I think heaven is depicted a whole lot more, particularly in Revelation chapter 22, that it's depicted more of a restoration of the Garden of Eden than Canaan. Because in Canaan, you know, they had a land that flowed with milk and honey. They had all these wells and all these vineyards and all these blessings. But there were a lot of bad people that they had to fight and conquer. They had continual conflict with uh, idolatry and with the wicked nations of that, which, by the way, in complete obedience, they, they told, God told them to purge out the entire promised land, and they ignored a couple people, and those people always came back to bite them. <laughs> That's what happens when you don't do what God says exactly like he tells you to do it. If you, at 95% obedience, I mean, I'm thankful for 95%, but that 5% is always going to come back and bite you, all right? <laughs> uh, and uh, they went in and they took the land. So you had this promised land, okay? And then you have these beautiful pictures um, in the Old Testament that he set up a tabernacle, right? A tabernacle that later became the temple. And you have these, these sacrifices, uh, that are made in the tabernacle, and so much of that is pointing to Jesus Christ and the priesthood and the Day of Atonement with the Ark of the Covenant, which the three components of the Ark of the Covenant are all pointing toward Jesus Christ. You have the mercy seat and then the high priest, Aaron, Christ being our great high priest. He goes in once on the Day of Atonement and he sprinkles blood on the mercy seat, right? That's all pointing toward Jesus Christ. Okay, so now there comes a time in the history of the Old Testament nation of Israel that God sets up a kingdom. Okay, they set up they set up a kingdom. Um, let's go to First uh, Samuel chapter thirteen. So y'all know the history of the nation of Israel. They uh, did not do well under the judge period. Which, by the way, what's the what's the roller coaster cycle there too? They're in disobedience. They are judged by some foreign oppressor. They said, oh man, we've messed up. Let us repent. They repent. Then they have a, a judge that's good. They have leadership. And then as soon as that leader dies, they start the same cycle all over again. And then they, they get into judgment. And then they said, oh boy, we've messed up again. And then they, did, they just follow the exact same cycle over and over again. And then uh, the, the judges... Uh, is also the time period where it says every man did what was right in his own eyes. So if they would have acted properly, <laughs> being under God as their king should have been good enough. It should have been good enough. But then there comes a time where they said, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. Now, God was already their king, but unfortunately, they weren't operating very well with God as their king. Look where they got to in the time of the judges, right? Now, God said, I'm your king. But he suffered them to say, okay, I'm going to give you, you want a king? I'll give you a natural king. And by the way, who'd they pick, who'd they pick as their first one? The man's man. Saul, that was taller than everybody else, that had the broad shoulders and looked like a king. And then that's almost kind of like the first Adam, if you will, right? We, we chose our own king, and what did Adam choose to do? He chose to sin. Well, then what does God do? He, he rejects Saul, and then who does he set up as king? The last Adam, so to say, 
Jesus Christ, who is the man after God's own heart, which is David, okay? So in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul's messed up again. And now Samuel's given him the update that, all right, I'm removing you as king. I'm removing my presence from you. 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Thou hast done foolishly, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. And this is, I don't have time to really chase down this side note, but it's so interesting, the amazing intersection between the omniscience, the perfect omniscience of God, and he knows everything that will occur and everything that can occur, but yet at the same time, his providence and guidance in a specific pathway. Because this makes it very clear that if Saul would have been obedient, the Messiah could have came through the tribe of Benjamin. I would have established your kingdom forever. However, centuries before Saul chose to rebel, God told us that Shiloh is going to come through the tribe of Judah. Okay? And this is just the amazing intersection between the providence and the guidance of God and his omniscience that if Saul was obedient, the, the messianic lineage could have came through Benjamin. But he knew he was going to rebel, so what did God tell even hundreds of years before? He didn't cause it, but he knew it. And he said, Shiloh is going to come through Judah. All right? But then he says in verse 14, Now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord sought him a man after his own heart. And that was the language I wanted. He's going to set up a king over this kingdom after a man after his own heart that would advance the kingdom. And who was that man? It was David, right? And by the way, what tribe was he from? He was from Judah. He was from the prophesied tribe. So now let's go to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So now you fast forward and Saul tries to kill David a whole bunch of times and God providentially protects him. Saul ends up being killed, taking his own life in battle. Now David is fully the king, okay? Man after God's own heart. He's fully the king. And now he has a good idea. He says, look, I'm living in this really nice house. We still have the, um, we have, we still have the Ark of the Covenant sitting out here in tents in the tabernacle. Uh, the Lord deserves better than I have. We need to build him a house. He originally asked Nathan about it, and Nathan said, well, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Sure, go build you a house, and then Lord, or build, build a house for the Lord. And then um, God comes back to Nathan and says, actually, go and provide a little bit more clarification for David. No, you're not going to build the house because you've been a man of war, you've shed much blood, but your son is going to preside over a kingdom of peace, by the way. Okay? We're going to see here that David, some of these things are referring to Solomon, but most of it is pointing toward Jesus Christ as the son of David setting up his church kingdom. And during Solomon's reign, the son of David during Solomon's reign, they had nothing but peace and prosperity in the kingdom. Okay? And that's certainly the blessing of peace and prosperity that we have in the New Testament gospel kingdom. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, begin reading in verse 12, And when thy days be fulfilled... Thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed. Okay? We're using that seed language again. It's not about him being uh, Solomon, who is the physical, biological son of David. 
Now, the lineage ended up coming through that biological lineage, but who is this seed? It's primarily speaking of Jesus Christ, right? The son of David. That language is used very much in the New Testament, which, by the way, um, Jews put a lot of emphasis on genealogies. But there is not anyone today that through a literal record can verify that they are a natural Jew because all of their genealogy records were destroyed in 586 BC and any ones that were left were destroyed in 70 AD. Okay? Why is it so important though that you realize that the very first chapter of the New Testament is a genealogy. Why is that important? It says there in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Okay? You have these promises to Abraham's seed and David's seed. You have Jews that have now been through this 400 years of silence and they've been looking for a Messiah. And how does the New Testament start? By giving him the biological pedigree that this is the Messiah, right? That's why genealogies are very important. They track timelines. Uh, the genealogy from Adam to Jacob gives us an exact time period from Jacob all the way to Adam, which verifies the young earth. This earth is about 6,000 years, okay? It's not millions of years old. Why? Because the genealogy in the Bible say Adam lived so many years and he begat such and such. He lived 100 years and he begat such and such. And when you tie all that together, when you tie those genealogies together, you have a definite historically documented date in Egypt. You trace that back 1,500 years or whatever the number is and you arrive at the creation of Adam. Okay? So genealogies are very important to have timelines but also to establish genealogies, okay? Now, that's why the New Testament starts with a genealogy. is <laughs> because Matthew was the Jewish gospel, and he's telling all these Jews, this is the guy who you've been looking for, right? Why? Because he is the seed of Abraham. He's the seed of David. So, this seed of David would set up, uh, shall proceed of, out of that voice, and he will establish his kingdom, Okay? And he shall build a house for my name. What's the church called in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15? But thou knowest how you should behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, right? What house did Christ build? The church, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And he will build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There came a time where the lineage of David and Solomon was removed from being over control of the throne and the authority of Israel, right? This is not a natural prophecy. This is a spiritual prophecy of Christ's spiritual kingdom, right? Because his kingdom would be established, Daniel chapter 2 that we keep coming back to, his kingdom would be established forever, okay? Now this particular one in verse 14, this applies to Solomon, not to Jesus, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. That certainly doesn't apply to Jesus. That's talking about Solomon. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, 
as I took it from Saul, which I put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Even all the way back in, um, in Revelation, Jesus is introduced as being the line of the tribe of Judah, and he's also described as being the root and the offspring of David. He's the root of him as the son of God, but he's the offspring as the son of man. But all of these references in the Old Testament of the son of David, Jesus Christ was David's seed, and what did he do? He set up a kingdom, right? He set up a kingdom, and, and a man after God's own heart ruled over this kingdom, which is Jesus Christ. Now let's move to a different aspect of this kingdom. <clears throat> and obviously, uh, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 8, by the way. Um, obviously, we know from the Old Testament that there was a land. God gave his people a, a land with defined borders, with a capital city of Jerusalem. And there were laws that governed that kingdom, wasn't there? Very specific laws. And no doubt there was accountability for breaking those laws. And see, God set up his church kingdom in a very similar manner, right? There is accountability to obey the commandments of God, and there is judgment if you don't obey. Now, there's judgment that takes place in the church setting between us, but primarily that judgment is, you know what? <laughs> if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Many times it's not the church that sends that sword. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's Jesus Christ who chastises that child severely in their own heart, okay? But there is a defined set of laws in the kingdom. And who's the person that enforces those laws? Well, it's obviously the king, right? <laughs> the king enforces those laws. Hebrews chapter 8, and this, this is in the middle of the entire book of Hebrews, which there are these New Testament Jewish converts to Christianity that are being enticed to go back under the law. And he's spending the whole book of Hebrews telling these Jews that Christ is far better than the bondage of the law. And he's trying to tell them, you, you're so zoned in in looking at all these Old Testament you know, prophets, like you're so zoned in in the lamb of the burnt offering that you think you need to go back to these burnt offerings. You're so zoned in on the lamb without blemish that's supposed to be made on the day of atonement that you're missing the overall lesson that that's pointing toward Jesus Christ of the lamb of God. You see, he said, you're so zoned in on all these Old Testament laws that you're missing what they were really teaching. <laughs> so he goes on to say, you know, you're zoned in on this, uh, on the Old Testament priesthood. We have to reestablish the priesthood. He's saying, look, Jesus is your great high priest. You're, you're concerned about these burnt offerings and the day of atonement and all these sacrifices. No, that was all pointing toward Christ, okay? And you're trying to put your primary identity as being the son and the seed of Abraham. And he's telling them your primary identity should be of being the seed of Christ, okay? So now, in Hebrews chapter 8, he says in verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. What was the first covenant? With natural Israel, 
Okay? Now, this is a great example of verses 8 to 12 are quoted from Jeremiah 31. And he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So that's written in the Old Testament. And there are going to be, there's going to be a new covenant with Israel and Judah. Now, is that talking about the natural Jews of the Old Testament? No, right? Because that covenant has been put away, and now we are under the new covenant. So who's he talking about? This covenant was with the Israel of God, right? It was with the chosen people of God. And then what are the requirements of this covenant that God made with the natural Jews of the house of Israel and Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant. That was almost somewhat of a bilateral covenant. Praise God, eternal salvation is a unilateral covenant. It's, it's one-sided. But the Old Testament natural covenant, it was kind of two-sided, Right? If you're obedient, I'm going to bless you. If you're disobedient, I'm going to send judgment. Thankfully, the covenant of grace is one-sided. Okay? Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them in their heart. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be, to my, be a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he said, a new covenant he hath made the old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish. This new covenant has replaced the old covenant. And what's it speaking of? It's speaking of the new birth, Right? That's when God writes his laws in your heart. And it's not up to us to go around preaching to people saying, you need to get right with the Lord and you need to get born again. Why? I mean, this could not be any clearer. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Because all of the spiritual house of Israel, they're all going to know me. Now, are all of them going to come to the evangelized knowledge of salvation by grace alone? No, they won't. But every single child of God will know the Lord in an Abba Father intimate knowledge in the new birth. Okay? Every single one will know them. And this is speaking of God's children in the new birth. Let's go to Romans chapter 2 where it describes this as being a circumcision of the heart. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. For he is not a Jew. See, this teaching is so clear and so simple, okay, that these references are not speaking to the natural nation of Israel. They are speaking to spiritual Jews. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not of the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Okay? Now, back up to the parenthetical statement in verses 13 to 15, which it gives a little bit more information on some of these people that have received the circumcision of the heart, but they don't have the external knowledge. You know, think about the law right now in this reference right here. Think about this in regards to the gospel. 
okay? There's some Jew, I mean, there's some Gentiles that they have the law written in their heart, but they don't have the written Torah of the first five books of the Bible to know exactly what God said. Well, there's a lot of children of God that have the law written in their heart and they have a compunction to do good, but they don't have the written word of God to know exactly what they need to be doing. But they have a testimony in their heart that manifests himself in their actions, okay? Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers shall be justified. Now, the Gentiles, which have not the law, they don't have the knowledge that they need. They don't have the written uh, explanations of this is the moral standard of God and this is how you need to be living. But even though they don't have that written word, they do by nature the things contained in the law. Having not the law, they are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. So their actions manifest that God has already written their law in their heart. Why is it that they're doing by their outward actions what God wrote down in his law, but they've never read the law? <laughs> How, how's that happening? Because God has wrote his law in their heart. And when they do wrong, they're convicted. And when they do right, they're assured. And they kind of get tired of being convicted all the time. So maybe I need to quit doing that stuff that makes me feel bad in my, in my conscience. Maybe I need to do those things that give me assurance and peace. And, and then over the course of time, what do they do? They're living a very godly life. They're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, but they don't have the written word. They don't have the preach word. They're only exhibiting the law that's written in their heart. It's being manifested in their external actions, right? So Jews are not those that are circumcised outward in the flesh, but those that have been born again and circumcised in the heart that are the participants in this new covenant with the new house of Israel. Now, one last one that we'd like to highlight very quickly. In Hebrews chapter 12, God set up a kingdom that had borders, that had boundaries, there were rules that set up this kingdom. And there are so many great spiritual lessons that we can learn in application of the church in the examination of the Old Testament and the prophecies in Jerusalem and Zion but particularly the city of Jerusalem and the city of Zion is pointing us toward the kingdom of God and to the church, okay? Hebrews chapter 12, and he's contrasting this. Uh, I'll tell you what, keep your finger right there. I'm gonna go to Galatians chapter four. Um, and Galatians chapter four is contrasting Hagar and Mount Sinai, okay, with Jerusalem and Mount Zion, one of them is bondage, one of them is fear, but the other one is liberty, okay? And he uses this language in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26. Again, he's contrasting this with Mount Sinai and with Hagar that's in bondage. And he uses this language in Galatians 4, 26. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all, okay? So again... This is not speaking of the natural city of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem which is up above, right? Think about the final fulfillment of all God's people. Where are we going to be at? Revelation 21 and 22, where are we going to be at? New Jerusalem, right? Which is the city of God. The Jerusalem which is from above is free. So now in, Matthew, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, in the verses leading up to this, it's making the same contrast. 
It's speaking of Sinai, who was very fearful. You have thunderings, and if you go up and you touch the, you touch the mountain, you're going to die. I mean, that's a very fearful situation, right? But you don't need to be afraid to approach unto this mountain. Why? You don't need to be afraid to approach unto Mount Zion because, in verse 22, you're coming to Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I love the depiction of New Jerusalem that it comes down from heaven from God. And see, that's what happens in the kingdom of heaven is all of the blessings that we have eternally in the, new, in the final New Jerusalem, here in the kingdom of heaven, they can come down for a little bit and we can taste a little bit of that Jerusalem from above, but we can taste it here in the kingdom of heaven right here and right now, right? To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. You are come unto Mount Zion. And there are so many references in the Old Testament to Jerusalem and to Mount Zion, and I hope when you read those, your mind automatically turns and points to the church and to the kingdom of God. And just by way of closing, I want to go to Psalm 48. And this is a great example of how if you only think about the natural nation of Israel and the physical location over there in the Middle East, you are going to miss so many spiritual blessings in the Old Testament. Because this lesson is not about Mount Zion in the Middle East. This is about the church and the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 48 and verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God and the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. Now, is that talking about the physical location of Jerusalem? Uh, is, that, is that the joy of the whole earth? No, right? Everybody knows that's not the case. No, that's not the joy of the whole earth. But the kingdom of heaven, which by the way, are the church, the church. This is, this is why I really want us to adopt a kingdom mindset, okay? Because there are many children of God that can press into, to the knowledge that they have, they can press into the kingdom in another country even though they have no idea what we know as the church is, okay? Because the, the kingdom is the joy of the whole earth, the joy of the whole earth. But the manifest true church of being a baptized believer in Jesus Christ and salvation by grace alone, that's not in the whole earth. But children of God, based on the knowledge that they have, they can press into the kingdom based on the knowledge that they have. And I guarantee you, it's diluted. It's not what we have. But those people in third world countries, I mean, there are children of God right now in China that are born again that do not know the name of Jesus, but they know a little bit about the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God wrote a law in their heart and he gave them a zeal to pursue the king. And based on the knowledge that they have, they pursue the king in the kingdom of heaven, but there's a high probability because of the communist regime that they uh, live under that they will never know about the church and be baptized into the primitive original church. But you know what? They can understand a little bit about Mount Zion. Why? Because they have the king residing in their heart, right? <laughs> the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Verse 12, walk about Zion. 
Go round about her, tell the towers thereof, mark ye well her bulwark, consider her palaces, that she may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever. He will be our guide even unto death. Okay? First of all, why are we citizens of the kingdom of the Israel of God? The only reason we are is because we have been sovereignly chosen by the grace and the mercy of God. Right? And then he was so kind and gracious to set up a new covenant with those that he chose to bring his spirit into their heart, to write laws in our heart, to where now we have the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the actions that we undertake. But I want you to understand, particularly as you study the Old Testament, that many of the lessons that are being presented in the natural nation of Israel are pointing toward this New Testament kingdom, okay? They are pointing toward the church and the blessings that we have to partake of in Mount Zion. That is the joy of the whole earth. That, in a sense, every child of God, I was getting to earlier, the church as we know it is an assembly of saints. An assembly of saints. Well, that unevangelized, born again child of God in China that I was referring to, they're probably never going to experience the assembly of the church. Right? Now, there's some underground churches in China. I'm thankful for the work that other churches have done in that. But they're probably never going to experience the assembly of the church in the manner that we do here in public worship today on Lord's Day. But they can still experience the kingdom of heaven, right? They can still experience a communion with the king. Why? Because the kingdom is within you. Remember that? The kingdom is within you. And I pray that we can all press into that kingdom, right? Press into that kingdom together, ultimately pursuing the king. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.